Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. The next step is humbly acknowledging the breadth and impact of my struggle with anger. Uh, it, I can remember being a kid. I grew up on a small farm in Kentucky. Uh, and, and my dad came and he said, we're going to grow a, pa- a small patch of sweet corn. Well, that didn't sound too intimidating until I learned that his definition of small patch was five acres. Um, if you were getting ready to buy a house and somebody said, it's just got a few problems you would want an inspection. Well, that's the difference between step one and step two. Step one is when we admit there is a problem. Step two is when we begin to acknowledge how big is it? How deep is it? Who has it affected? It's hard. It's hard to admit how off we get when we're angry. Uh, Justin and Lindsay Holcomb again say, the longer that anger consumes us, the harder it is to let go of the pride that comes with it. We just feel so justified. So what I want to do here is give us seven questions uh, that I take from an article by David Pallison where, where he would say, here are some questions that would help us evaluate if what we are, if what we are expressing is truly righteous anger. Do you get angry about the right things? And too often, this is our only criteria for righteous anger. Uh, And it usually comes in the form of a question. Is it so bad for me to want blank? And if the answer is no, then I'm off the hook. Well, that is one of seven criteria uh, that I think it would be wise for us to use. Uh, Do you express anger in the right way? Well, it's not just about the right trigger. It's also about the right response. How long does your anger last? What's the duration of your anger? Uh, How controlled is your anger? You know, is it one of those that just kind of spikes and is out of control and then come back and it's, I don't even know who that person was that was talking a minute ago. What motivated your anger? You know, there's times when anger reveals a problem in terms of something that's becoming too, too important to us even if we're able to keep some of the trappings around it nice and neat enough uh, that it hasn't yet uh, harmed other people that we love. You know, Paul Tripp, he says, truth that is not spoken in love ceases to be truth, uh, not because it's untrue, but because it becomes distorted and contaminated by human impatience, bitterness, and anger. You know, is your anger primed and ready to respond? Uh, What is the effect of your anger? And one way that we could maybe think about those are questions, those are, those are basic questions of maturity. Uh, it, uh, there was a group of sociologists, and sociologists love it when they find a group of people uh, that civilization has not gotten to yet uh, because they think they're going to find something very primal uh, about the human experience. Uh, and, and a group of sociologists found a group of Eskimos 
and they came, and they, you know, it was such harsh conditions that uh, very few people, I mean, they didn't know about everything that was going on in the world, and what they knew of history was just their little clan. There wasn't the, uh, you know, this larger sense of world history. And one of the things that initially fascinated them is that as they got to know their language, they had no word for anger. And there wasn't a whole lot of anger in the... Tr- and they thought, we have found a group of people who don't do anger. Uh, well, as they stayed with them for a little longer, uh, they realized they did have a word for anger. It was childishness. And part of the reason was is the climate was so dangerous. To do most of the flamboyant stuff that we do when we get angry, the, the part that caught the attention of all the people was not the flaring hotness of the emotion, but wait a second, you destroy something when we're in this climate, that's childish, that's dangerous. And it may not be the most pleasant way for us to think about what we do in our anger, but when we look at these questions, they are basic questions of maturity. And so one of the things that we need to see out of that is anger is something that we do. Anger isn't something that happens to us. Uh, It's something that we do. And one of the ways that we often kind of fish around that is through metaphors. Uh, And metaphors can be helpful. Uh, Just in being descriptive of what my experience of anger is like, they're just not helpful in producing remedies. Uh, And so one of the ways that... Uh, I am a very sensorily sensitive person. Uh, And so that age when my children were small and there was just noise and activity and cartoons and toys that played sounds and all of this kind of stuff, I, I felt like my head was splitting in two. Okay? Well, that is helpful at the descriptive level. It, it, kind of points in a direction that that this agitation is coming from sensory overload. Uh, But taking duct tape and wrapping my head with it uh, to keep it together, um, there's no there's no therapeutic value to that in the sense that this gives us a path forward. Uh, One of the reasons I bring that up is when you look at the common metaphors that are out there for anger, a lot of them kind of build around this idea of steam or fluid. I just, I need to kind of, I, I need to release uh, the anger that I have. And it's, it's built out of this idea of catharsis. Uh, that anger is this pent-up energy, steam, fluid, and I've just got to get it out. Uh, and it's, it's kind of gross, but it's kind of like when you vomit and you feel better. And you're like, oh, okay. It, here's the real danger that I would bring up in a cathartic view, taking that metaphor and using it as a remedy for anger, it doesn't really help us get over anger. It makes us better anger athletes. It's training. It's not a remedy. And so when you get lathered up and you let it go and you're just hammering, um, well, all of that's kind of in your pocket. Uh, and now the next time, uh, you, you can do all of that again before you have to get creative. And so taking the metaphor of steam or pent-up energy and using that as a remedy of catharsis, it doesn't make it better. It makes us better anger athletes. 
It, uh, Leslie Vernick. She says, our bigger problem is denial or blindness. Uh, the inability or refusal to see or take responsibility for our habitual repetitive sins. The biblical term for this is hardness of heart. When we rely on those metaphors, when we give in to blame shifting, uh, the kinds of ways that Scripture would, dis- would describe that as being blind, to have a hardness of heart, a stiff neck. Um, you know, if, if you look at Exodus 20, which Jesus quotes in Matthew 5, where it says, Thou shalt not murder, uh, and then Jesus takes that to say we shouldn't even look at uh, our brother or sister in Christ and say, You fool, and we're all going, I've said a lot worse than that. Um, uh, but he says, If you do one, you are guilty of the other. Uh, it, it's easy for us to write that off as hyperbole. Uh, but this diagram here is just meant to give you a, a picture of that. Uh, that at the heart level, uh, sinful anger is when something becomes more important than someone. When there's something that I want bad enough that I'm willing to sin against you in order to get it. And then that can go to aggressive thoughts, rude words, intimidating actions, mild physical force, increased physical force, uh, harm that's significant but non-life-threatening. And, and you go down and you... And you think, I'm not going to cross some of those lines. But one of the things that in my role as a counselor that, that is surprising at first but then shouldn't surprise us is that when somebody's gotten to the point of being abusive and you're sitting down and they're telling you their story and there's that moment where they're just kind of staring at you and you've gotten past the denial and the resistance and they're just going, is that really what I did? Is that what that was? No! It's not like that! And, you know, if you, if you think about a rainbow, uh, you know, it's pretty clear where red is, uh, and then orange and yellow. And if you're in the middle of the stripe, uh, it's pretty clear. But then when you're crossing from one to the other, where exactly red ends and orange begins. Uh, this is like me when my wife sends me for paint at the paint store, and it's like, ah, there are so many colors, I don't know. It, it becomes harder to tell. And oftentimes when we're in that moment of anger, all of this kind of thing gets lost because all we see are the shoes on the floor that we have told you to pick up how many times? Uh, All we hear is the lack of respect and the lack of appreciation. Uh, All we feel is that we're late and we're supposed to be on time and I am embarrassed and this is bad. Because one of the things that we're in in that moment, and kind of maybe one of those principles to, to write down, is that we tend to hear and see first what we fear most. And so if what we fear is a lack of respect, when we get in an uncomfortable moment, we're going to see a lack of respect everywhere. I told you I was a country kid from Kentucky. One of the things I liked to do as a kid uh, was play and romp around in the woods. The only problem was I had a fear of snakes. And so as you're playing around in the woods and you got your dog and your BB gun and you're a big dude, uh, and all of a sudden uh, there is a crooked stick on the ground. It's a snake until it proves otherwise. It, 
I tend to see first what I fear most. And when anger becomes a chronic habit, the kinds of things that would trigger us to that, it, we begin to see them very early and often, even when they're not there, and they'll take us further down that scale than we want to go. And so I would invite you to make a list of the consequences um, of your anger. Thinking about areas of life like marriage, parents, children, friends, church, work, health, emotions like guilt. And then to take a minute and reflect. Because when you do that, again, we're going to get defensive. It just happens. And, and we tend to return to this kind of logic where we say, Ah, I've got these friends over here. Nothing's going wrong with them. See, the problem's not me. As if if I've got one good set of friends, then I don't have a problem. Um, if the doctor looks at me and says, I think your leg's broken, we go, no, doc, my arm's fine. Look, bone, solid. Um, it, that, that logic doesn't carry over. It, and anger has this propensity to express itself most where we feel most safe, where we have the most at stake. And so the fact that you can point to more casual social relationships uh, that are usually in the presence of other people that aren't that close and it doesn't have as much weight on them, and go, no, 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 we get along fine. We talk about all kinds of hard stuff. We talk about politics and religion and all that. Nobody yells. At least we're all yelling about the same thing. Um, it, that doesn't mean that when you're in another environment that that struggle doesn't exist.